This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Kevin Boot, Theodore LaBarbera, and James Foster, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Matthias Cam, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 528 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr-Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today's guest is Veronica Roth, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 409, and it's our panel on the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2021, back in episode 492. She's the author of books such as Chosen Ones, Carve the Mark, and The End and Other Beginnings. And her best-selling Divergent novels were adapted into a series of popular films starring Shailene Woodley and Theo James. And in this interview, we'll be discussing Veronica's new novel, Poster Girl, which was edited by our producer, John Joseph Adams, and her upcoming novella, Arch Conspirator, a science fiction retelling of the ancient Greek play Antigone. And now here's our interview with Veronica Roth. All right, so we're here with Veronica Roth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so your new book is called Poster Girl. So how'd this book come about? Well, um, I think so far my adult works have been about kind of what happens after the stories that we have already been told. So Chosen Ones was about, you know, 10 years after a group of teens saves the world. And Poster Girl is about after the fall of an authoritarian regime. So um, I had that kind of concept in mind, just writing a sort of post dystopia. I thought that would be interesting, but I didn't have a story. Um until I figured out the main character, uh, who's Sonia, I wanted her to be not a typical hero figure, but to be someone who's kind of guilty, um, complicit in the authoritarian regime that fell and struggling with how she understands that and kind of how she's been manipulated by the system and, and all that. So I think once I figured her out, the, the concept of the story came together. Why don't you explain the title, Poster Girl? What does that mean? So the way that she is kind of complicit in this regime is that she is the literal face on the propaganda posters. She's about 16 when she agrees to do it, and her face is plastered pretty much all over the city. So um, she's essentially famous or infamous, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it sort of reminds me of Big Brother is watching you from 1984. Is that sort of what you were thinking of? Well, I think, uh, you know, mass surveillance isn't really new to dystopia but so certainly yes i was influenced by like the whole history of dystopia and you're being watched but um i was interested in this story in exploring a kind of voluntary mass surveillance because we usually kind of think of it as something that's imposed from without um but in this case it's something that everyone in her society not everyone but um that people are kind of excited about because the surveillance device is an ocular implant 
um, that serves kind of as like a smartphone would. It plays, it can um, like give you access to information about the world around you. Um, it can pl- help you play music. You can watch a movie with a friend. Like it's a very friendly feeling device, but the way that it's used is, is sort of, you know, what makes it so problematic. So um, that was kind of the, my new take <laughs> on mass surveillance. Um, obviously it's very close to how we currently use our devices. So that made it appealing for sure. Uh, was that a challenge telling the story from the point of view of somebody who kind of grew up liking this surveillance state? I guess not. Um, because <laughs> that's kind of how I feel. I felt like I identified with her in that. I mean, I carry a smartphone everywhere. I'm more paranoid about it now than I was before I wrote this book, <laughs> uh, because I've researched all the ways that it's used and how our data is used. But, um, I, you know, grew up like wanting and craving these devices to make you know, make me, you know, not like cool, but like on, you know, (laughs) on top of the times, um, like with each new iPod, you know, like, Ooh, the scrolling wheel has no clicks now. Ooh, the buttons, you know, like, so I think for me, it felt very close to my reality. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more later, but first let's just set up. So the, the situation in the book is that, yeah, there was this authoritarian regime called the delegation, and it fell about 10 years before the story starts. Mm-hmm. And so Sonia and a bunch of other people who were sort of tagged as loyalists to the old regime have been put into this um, sort of apartment complex prison called the Aperture. Um, did you remember, like, how did you come up with all, all those ideas? Like, did the Aperture and like, what, what sort of um, order did you come up with those ideas in? Gosh, I wish I remembered better. <laughs> Full disclaimer, I wrote this in 2020, so it's been longer than usual for me between okay. books, um, but I'll do my best. Yeah, I I wanted her to be separate from the world and have to kind of reemerge into it. But I also thought it was kind of, I don't know, I wanted a, a kind of gentler prison environment. That sounds, that's like the wrong way to put it, <laughs> but, um, but I didn't want it to seem so overtly cruel. Uh, they kind of build a whole society in this like single block of the city um, and form a whole different world there. And that was interesting, you know, from a world building perspective, building the world inside and then the world outside and kind of showing the contrast between them. So I think that's what made it most appealing to me is that there's there's a kind of feeling in the in the book that some of the characters feel like I don't want to leave here. I want to stay here in my own created universe and I don't want to have to deal with the world outside which has changed. And then there's Sonia who is forced to to contend with what's happened outside the walls and to figure out what her place in that world could be if if any. So um I think that's where that came from, but I don't remember <laughs> to return to your actual question. I don't remember what order that came in. I think it, it's almost like everything happened at once with this book for some reason. Well, well so the, the aperture, it's this, yeah, like I said, it's this sort of complex of apartment buildings and there's this sort of X of roads and then there's these tunnels between the different buildings. Is that just all out of your imagination or is that does that resemble any place that you've lived or heard about? Or <laughs> No, not really. I mean, I think I did write this, you know, a couple months after the pandemic when everything not after the pandemic, but after lockdown, um, when like everything into the pandemic, a couple months yeah. into the pandemic, yeah, yes. So uh, we were only just like kind of reemerging a little bit when I was writing this, and then, but it was before the vaccine. So I think everything felt very contained, and 
I, I think that's why we ended up, I ended up with these four buildings because they felt like their own distinct units that like people could move between, but they were still, they had their own personalities. I almost felt like that's what we were living in. You know, if you live in an apartment building during the pandemic, it's kind of the, that's the feeling of it. You <laughs> feel like this claustrophobia was appealing for some reason. Have you been in an environment like that where like everybody, like a, a dorm or something where everyone knows each other and like, is that, was that drawn from any experience at all? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in college it was like that. I, I lived in dorms for three of my four college years. And also, you know, in my early adulthood, I always lived in an apartment where you end up getting to know, you know, who, who does their snow shoveling on time and who's <laughs> growing plants and who's always smoking weed on the porch, you know, like <laughs> all those personalities become um, real to you. And I always love that kind of environment in a certain sense. I mean, apart from the like inconveniences of living in an apartment building, like people like broom handling your floor, if you do too much jumping jacks <laughs> or what, you know, whatever, like those things aren't great, but the communal environment, I think, especially in science fiction has always been appealing to me, like generation spaceships and, um and stuff like that so yeah so when you were like sort of imagining the delegation did you like did you do anything to make it seem more appealing or is there anything about that life under the delegation that seems appealing to you um well i think it's it's supposed to kind of reflect what's happening now only things are more overt. So like right now with your smartphone not to put on my tinfoil hat but i'm not <laughs> um like the government can buy your data. <laughs> it's it's uh it's happened. Like uh, I think our government purchased app data from a Muslim prayer app like a couple of years ago and there were articles about it but you know people didn't seem as like upset by it as they probably should have been. Um just because it creeps me out to think that they like people can follow you wherever you go and right now most of your data is purchased by companies um to better sell you products but that is that's creepy and unsettling but if all of that was on the surface that would be kind of what the delegation was um obviously ramped up a bit with the behavioral they they do kind of a social credit system a little like what's happening in China um now but a little more like i think what social media does um especially during the pandemic you know, I so just like so this isn't a distraction. I'm vaccinated and boosted and have always complied with mask gui mask guidelines and stuff. But on social media, you know, for the first part of the pandemic, it was like you posted a mask selfie and then you posted a vaccine selfie. And it's just every time you socialized, you had to like disclaimer like, oh, we're sitting six feet apart. <laughs> oh, we're we all got tested. You know, like you felt like you had to report on your own behavior to receive particular rewards or at least to avoid negative repercussions. and. I think seeing all that happen was a little amusing and also a little disturbing because it's like, okay, well, now I'm volunteering to be monitored by the people around me who I'm supposed to be friends with. <laughs> so um, it's just very, it's an odd behavior. So I think the delegation feels like, like reality on steroids to me. Um, and so there are appealing things about it because there are appealing things about the way that we live now. Um, but there are, you know, unappealing things too. Well, I mean, there are appealing things about being graded or judged if you're being if you're getting good grades i mean like oh yeah so you kind of reminded me of sort of a straight a student you know who who likes going to school and likes getting grades and stuff because she's getting straight a's basically yeah that's a good point because i was definitely like one of those students i love um to be like rewarded in school and i was always good at tests so i think i and i was always well behaved so i think hmm. there's part of that that's like you know 
it's always, it's appealing to know that you're doing the right thing and you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing to a certain type of personality. Yeah. And Waffle she, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Call. Yeah. Shout out to the D and D fans. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because she, uh, she you know, in, in a couple conversations in the book, she, she defends the system in, in ways I thought was kind of interesting. So like one of the things it says is, um, uh, now those small choices, posture, the length of a stare the activity one chooses to pass the time on the train are empty of value and the people are ruled by whim instead. So there's kind of this sense of, uh, you know, there's been this loss of, uh, structure or meaning that, yeah, she argues with someone later in the book and says, everything that I did had meaning. And he says, no, everything you did was quantified. Um, and I think that was kind of the, like, a, one of those, sometimes you write a line, you know, in a book and you're like, oh, yeah, that's like the <laughs> summary, you know, and that was kind of that. That was one of those lines for me. It's like, okay, now I know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there a way you could expand on that? Like, what is the difference between your behavior being quantified and having meaning well um you know she's she sort of feels this loss of meaning just because people are are driven by whim people are doing what they want essentially but she believes that that doesn't have any deeper meaning but i I just don't think that those things are opposed to each other um doing the thing that doing small things that you want is not like devoid of meaning so i think she's just kind of been taught to think of things as like think of her own desires as not being worthy um, unless they're being graded by an external source and, um, not trusting your desires, I think is, is something that a lot of my work engages with, um, probably just because of like being a woman in the world, you're kind of told the things you want are not available to you or that they're in competition with each other. So you can't have them all. So I think, um, I'm always kind of fixated on that theme in particular. Yeah. It's almost a kind of Zen thing or something that, that meaning has to be personal and inter- uh, internally generated and if mm-hmm. you're you know conforming to exterior things it's never going to 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 feel as as deep and profound and personal as as is the direction that you choose for yourself yeah like uh even now in our culture it's hard to make something just to make it like it has to be like productive or you know you could sell it like it has to be. Um, but that's not, I mean, that's not true. Like those things can be meaningful just because they're meaningful to you. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Another thing that sort of struck me is when, when Sonia, after 10 years, you know, we said that she grew up under the delegation and then there's been this subsequent society called the triumvirate, uh, which is, you know, they've gotten rid of the surveillance state mostly. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. it has, things haven't changed as much as maybe people would have hoped. But, um, but then when she comes out, like things are all a little bit more, I, I mean, for the most part, a little, she, she thinks there are things are sort of run down and dirty and, you know, things are not as spick and span as they were under the, the delegation. It was reminding me of when I was in high school, my history teacher described taking a class trip to the Soviet Union. And he's like, and you could walk around it you know, midnight with a bunch of teenagers in the middle of Moscow and you felt completely safe, which is not something you could say at that time, uh, going into New York city, you know? So, yeah. Well, I think there's something to that because I spend a lot of time in Romania, um, with my husband, cause he has some work he's doing there and some family that lives there. And, um, there's kind of that feeling there that like they, you know, they were under communism under Ceausescu, who's particularly, 
uh, authoritarian. And I don't know if it was like neater and cleaner there under his reign, um, but certainly in the aftermath, the government that replaced him, while better, is still like rife with corruption. And there are regularly protests, which I guess, I mean, that's progress in itself that they can protest now. But, um, you know, so it, it's just that the regime that replaces the highly efficient, tyrannical one is maybe a little bit scattered and messier because it's trying to recover from the intense control um, that the society was under before. So it's, it's not, I don't know, like Sonia scorning the lack of order is a little bit funny to me. Cause it's like, well, I think the people would, would prefer disorder <laughs> um, to this like constant monitoring, but you know, she's obviously like still kind of drinking the Kool-Aid so to speak. Um, but I think my experience in Romania, just seeing how it's bounced back, even in the uh, 10 years that I've been going there. Like when I first went there, there was a Starbucks and that was very exciting to everybody. <laughs> and now like you can find lentils in the grocery store, which is very exciting. <laughs> um, and you can find like a variety of hair products. And like, there are a diverse range of people there. Whereas when I first went there, it was like ethnically homogenous. Um, anyway, it's just very startling to see a place uh, change so rapidly in the aftermath of a regime change. Yeah. It's just interesting to me that there's always, under any system, there's always going to be people who benefit and people who don't benefit. And then the people who benefit when things change, there's always going to be things that they can look back on fondly, even yeah. if from an objective standpoint, it was really, really terrible in the past. Right. Like, uh, like even now, if you go to kind of like the Christmas market in Romania, they sell like little magnets with Ceausescu's face on it. And this man was brutal and horrible, like to a lot of people. But there are some people who still like kind of crave, they have like communist nostalgia, you know, because for them, it maybe wasn't so bad during that time. Maybe things were even better. Um, but, you know, for everyone that benefits, there's somebody that doesn't. So, yep. Yeah. So, so do you think that would the book be a lot different based on if you hadn't ever gone to Romania or did, did you just do a lot of research and these sort of author authoritarian patterns kind of crop up? You know, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I'd even be interested in the same stuff if I hadn't been there. Um, it's my closest experience with a lot of the kind of themes that dystopia explores. Although certainly you can, you know, look around and observe that in many different ways in our society and in other places. So I'm not saying like it's particular to Romania, but it's just that I think it, it kind of informed my interest in it and shaped the way that I think about um, like what makes a government uh, a problem. Like I still, even now people talk to me about like living in a dystopia now and here in the States. And certainly like there's aspects of our life here that are kind of dystopian of course especially during the pandemic that became so clear but um we can still like get online and rant about our government and to me that's such a huge thing to pay attention to like we still have liberties and we should take advantage of them to change things but to me that's one of the things that separates like a truly kind of dystopian environment from one that is just kind of broken and needs fixing um yeah anyway yeah. sorry rambling no, no, no that's fine um, we'll also talk about, so another sort of faction in this world is called the analog army. And so, whereas the, um, the triumvirate has gotten rid of the super over the top surveillance state, the analog army wants to go even for, take things even further and go back before networked computers, basically. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about like, how did you come up with the idea for the analog army and why did you want that in this book? 
Well, I I wanted some extremists, I guess. Um, I find the analog army tremendously funny, um, hmm. which probably I shouldn't. But they just like have their little warehouse full of like old technology, like record players and hair dryers and stuff, which um, anyway, you got to make your own fun when you're writing. But I I wanted to show that, that, you know, even when you have a revolution, there's still people who believe it didn't go far enough. And maybe they're right. You know, they were like, we were promised a total societal upheaval. And what we got is this kind of middle ground and we're not happy with it. Um, and I just I think it's just important to have the various like mindsets represented. There are, you know, people who love the delegation, people who hate the delegation, people who love the triumvirate, people who don't think it went far enough, people who think it went too far, you know, like it just to showcase a kind of range of personalities and opinions about, about the world makes the world feel more lived in. Um, And then obviously like they become analog army becomes kind of a more central force in the book, but I can't really, (laughs) can't really talk about that without spoiling things. I mean, do you, do you feel sympathetic with the analog army at all? I mean, I was just, I saw a thing on Twitter the other day where somebody said something to the effect of, I think that the reason there's so much anger these days is because people sense that like young people sense that that we were just happier growing up in the 80s and 90s before the internet. And yeah. I mean, definitely, I, I'm i sort of glad I grew up before the internet. I mean, I, I think there's some uh, validity to that viewpoint. Yeah, me. I mean, me too. I, I think all the time about how lucky I am that there was no Twitter when I was 16 and had all kinds of bogus opinions. <laughs> and, you know, like really wanted a platform to, to speak them aloud. But there was none um, at that time. And I'm like, whoo, what a relief. Because you do a lot of growing at that age. And um, I think that should be kind of allowed. But now the internet has permanence. You know, it's hard to delete things forever. So it's odd to have all the various permutations of yourself available for people to search if they decide to. Um, and that's a, that's a little alarming. And there's, oh, man, there's something else I was thinking about with the oh okay so also i have become frustrated with how every application or program on my computer wants to save to a cloud just like what happened to storing this on the hard drive where it was finite um and also was not under someone else's control it was under mine so i do have that frustration like an old man uh ranting (laughs) at the clouds or whatever so yeah well yeah i mean and that's you know sort of something that comes up in the book is if there's this massive data set on you people can you know it, it's sort of dangerous what what people how people can misuse that information and there's this uh, i just wanted to read this quote um uh in the book it says just because you're not committing a crime now by going where you go by seeing who you see doesn't mean that another government another set of people with another set of priorities won't come along and call you a criminal one day the players change the rules change that's an inevitability and there is this thing now some people call it offense archaeology where you know you want to take somebody down and you'll just go through their entire twitter history or their entire podcast history or whatever every interview they've ever given looking for that one thing that was sort of an ill-judged comment or maybe was sort of normal at the time but has since become frowned upon and just make it as if that's the whole of their identity is is that one thing that you can use against them yeah and i think um with the recent Supreme Court stuff about abortion, this has become kind of more relatable to people because a lot of a lot of women have like an app on their phone that helps them track their period. Um, 
And there was kind of a lot of talk about like, oh, you should delete that app now because if the government can access your app data, then they could conceivably track, you know, when you last menstruated and determine whether you've had an abortion or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's like deeply unsettling. <laughs> and, but it's just an example of how things can change overnight. And you don't like if we don't impose limits on the access to our data, then something that seemed harmless, you know, a couple of years ago, like I went to the Women's March in Atlanta. Um, after Trump was elected, like my presence there was logged by my phone and by by social media. And so if there was a significant regime change, and suddenly it was kind of criminalized to have gone to those, uh, gone to those protests, or even not criminalized, but just like puts you on some kind of list somewhere where you're being watched, like that's, that's closer at hand than people I think would like to believe. And certainly I would like to believe. But now I think about it all the time, I guess. So um, I, I do think like we need to create stable systems, which is something that kind of a, a sentiment that's kind of echoed in Poster Girl. Yeah. Is there any, you, you said that writing this book sort of made you more paranoid about this kind of stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, is there anything that maybe our listeners might not be aware of that you stumbled across in the course of your research? Um, well, it's not a bad idea to get a VPN. Um, that's one thing I, I don't activate Siri. Um, I don't want my device to be listening to me all the time. I don't own an Alexa or anything like that. Um, apparently I learned yesterday from a different interview that, uh, that Instagram, like you have to disable the microphone function. Otherwise it can just record you all the time. Um, so it's like an opt, you have to opt out of it. I don't know how to yet, but I am going to research that today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) seriously. So it's just... Uh, I, I switched to, to an iPhone because like I did some research on, um, like basically you have to choose your poison. Like no system is, is particularly amazing, but, uh, I did like the, the iPhones, like at least it says you can opt out of sharing your data or you can kind of obscure your data. Um, and I liked that. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm switching, uh, I don't know if it's that much better, but it seemed marginally better. So there's a few things that you could think about. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, it's hard. It's hard to figure out because I don't want to like leave the world Ron Swanson style and live in a cabin in the woods. Like I have to be online for my work. And I also, you know, want to, I want FedEx to tell me when my packages are coming. Like I really (laughs) do. Um, so I just think we kind of have put this on the user to find ways to like keep creeps out of your data. But I, think that really shouldn't be our responsibility like it should be protected on a on a grander scale um but i haven't quite figured out what to do about that opinion yet yeah well so you say you've been doing other interviews for the book like what kind of uh oh yeah people sort of uh been asking you about or been sort of uh, focused in on in the book Oh, I don't know. I mean, I took a I took a six month social media hiatus to write it. So I've been talking a little bit about what that experience was like psychologically. Um, as someone who's very active on social media, it was, it was very strange ben- beneficial, time. I guess, or I would assume. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I got so much done. Um, first of all, I was just so creative during that time. But also, it kind of broke my addiction to social media in a way like some of it's returned. But um, I don't doom scroll anymore, which is good. If you know what, I'm sure you know what do scrolling is. But, yeah. I mean, you can yeah. explain, I guess, for listeners, if you, you know, 
it, it's yeah. just like when you you have nothing in particular you're look no information in particular you're looking for you're just scrolling your feed and since most of the things are going to be uh negative or you know uh designed to uh, make you angry or something it's just this sort of like endless process of scrolling and getting more and more uh hopeless or depressed Yes, I I read a study about how it works too. And I, I wish I had memorized the exact like cycle of it. But it's people, especially with depression and anxiety go on social media to upregulate their mood because they're kind of like hunter gatherer style, like seeking uh, dopamine bo- boosting, like things. Um, like we we love to like search for stuff and and find it. Um, but then social media does not upregulate your mood. Like it doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. But then you keep like you keep scrolling because you're kind of like ho- holding out hope that like you'll feel better, but you won't <laughs> feel better. It's it's awful. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask, I mean, speaking of writing this during the pandemic, you say uh, in the, the dedication, it says to Tara and Trevor, hosts of the pandemic oasis where I wrote this book. Like what is yeah. the, what is the story behind that? So uh, during a, so it was like post lockdown things were in Chicago, things were opening up a little bit and me and my husband and my dog took a road trip across country from Chicago to Los Angeles. And we spent two months with his brother, um, Trevor and, <laughs> and his brother's wife, Tara, and lived in their house for two months. Cause you know, when you're in the Midwest, like right before winter sets in and nobody is going like no one's hanging out inside still. Like it's a little, you know, we were lonely. <laughs> so yeah. it was nice. But we had to, we took the RV because, you know, we wanted to not bring COVID to them um, at that time when it was so scary still. I mean, it's still, there are aspects that are scary now, but it's a little, it's like a little less scary now. Um, anyway, so yeah, drove cross country. It was pretty amazing. Yes. And so, so you said that was a six month, wait, that was a six month period. Did you, or you said you were off no. social media for six months? Yeah. I was off social media for six months and started there. We spent two months there and that's where I wrote kind of the bulk of the draft. I didn't finish there, obviously. Like it takes longer than two months for me to write a book, but, um, I wrote so much of it there and so much of it was kind of conditioned by the conversations I had with them there about, about the hiatus. And, um, yeah, I was there. I think it was uh, October and November of 2020. Mm. I mean, cause th- and that is a pretty still like two months to get the bulk of the writing done. It's pretty good. I mean, and, but this is, this is a shorter book, right? Than your, than your other ones. Yeah. This is uh, the shortest book I have ever written, which is wild. I mean, it's still like 90,000 words, so it's not that short, but um, it just required a little less time to do world building. I think, cause it's so close to our reality. Um, in some ways, like there isn't a new planet with new plants. There, there isn't like a magic system that needs to be built. Like it's pretty grounded in terms of, you know, on the big spectrum of genre fiction. Uh, well, cause I saw that you had a short story collection come out. So I was wondering if that experience of writing short stories, uh, sort of inspired you to, to try writing shorter, more shorter stuff. Well, you know, the secret is that I'm always trying to write shorter, always. Um, and I just rarely succeed, but this, this story was originally conceived of as a novella and I expanded it. So I think that factors into why it's like a different length than my other work. Cause I kind of tried to flesh out something small instead of trying to pare down something big. Um, and it turns out like that might be a good approach for me because <laughs> I think the, the process of doing that was a lot more joyful than trying to like cut out ideas, you know? So who yeah. knows? 
I mean, I, I really love novellas and I've heard people say, you know, people who know what they're talking about say that the novella is the perfect form for science fiction because it's long enough that you can, um, you know, really, you can explore a single idea well, but you don't have to add a bunch of other ideas. You know, you, you can, it's sort of short enough you can focus on one idea, but long enough that you can do justice yeah. to that idea. Yeah, I think uh, novella and and novelette are like really excellent for sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I do read a lot of novellas for that reason. It does feel like a really good, a good format. Uh, I mean, because you have another book coming out in February called Arch Conspirator. Yes. Which it looks like it's like 123 pages or something. Yeah, it's a sci-fi retelling of Antigone. Comes out in February. So that's even more. Is that a is that a novella or? Yeah, yeah, it's a novella. Uh, yeah. So I'm excited for that. So how did you get the idea for that one? Well, I love Antigone. It's really <laughs> the answer. I was talking to a friend about retellings and how many I was seeing, and it was one of those things where you know you're like, oh well, you know, retellings are are cool, but I don't think I'll ever write one. And she was like, yeah, yeah. And then later that day, I was like, but if I did, it would be Antigone. And she was like, well, do it then. <laughs> Jeez. So that's really how it came about. <laughs> so so why did you think you would never write one? Um, I don't know. I, I felt kind of like it's oppressive to take on someone else's like outline and someone else's idea and have to like decide to what extent you're going to be faithful to it, especially to a work like like Antigone, it's such a, it's a legendary like play that's a part of our canon for a reason. Like I really think it's amazing, um, and it's very daunting to think about like taking it and doing something else with it while still preserving enough of it to make it feel like a retelling. You know, because you could change everything about it and call it a retelling, and people would be like, "What?" Um, so uh, just figuring that out, I think, just felt really exhausting. But then. I found a new joy in it. And I think it worked because it was a novella. Like I didn't have to live in it forever. Um, I lived in it for a few months and I don't know. And it also provided an existing structure, which was very appealing to kind of follow the same logical flow as the play helped me, freed me to explore other things like, like world building and like character when I didn't have to figure out the plot because the plot was <laughs> already like basically set. Um, so I, I frequently tell myself I'm never going to do something like with poster girl. I said, Oh, I'm never going to write a mystery. And poster girl is a mystery. <laughs> so I think I say that because I'm like, I know I'm going to, and I'm not ready to do it yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting how our relationship had to retellings has changed over time. I mean, this, this, uh, this, this is what scholars tell me anyway, is that, you know, mm -hmm. in the sort of in the middle ages, um, or I guess in the, in the modern period, we, we value the future and novelty and stuff. And so people tend to exaggerate how original and not inspired by anything else, you know, to downplay what their yeah. inspirations were. But in the past, you know, they, in, in the Middle Ages and like in Shakespeare's day and stuff that they valued the past. And so people would come up with their own stories and they would actually make up false um you know, uh, histories. You know, they're like, this is actually a retelling of an ancient play or something when it wasn't. <laughs> Because that's what that's what got you respect uh, back then, and then that kind of flipped. So I've always thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, now it's like we are kind of doing the same thing with our constant rebooting. And if yeah. you can pitch something as a retelling, it's like oh, people trust it more because they already know what they what they're gonna get. Um, 
It is very interesting that we've changed. I mean, even Antigone, like it, it, the one that we read is by Sophocles, but I think Aeschylus um, wrote, or Euripides, I don't remember who, uh, wrote a version of Antigone too. It's just been kind of lost to time mm-hmm. and it has some minor differences. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I read a lot of stuff about, <laughs> about Antigone. It's all kind of blurring together now. So, so why do you love Antigone so much? Um, I think I, I love it because of her. She's such a good character. And I, I think, you know, we often frame retellings as, as being like, there's something in the original work that needs to be corrected. So it's like a feminist retelling or a modern retelling. Um, and that's fine, but I didn't approach it that way. I, I love the play. And I think Antigone is like a nuanced and complex character with as much agency as is possible for a woman with no, you know, institutional power would be. Um, she is defiant, but also like resigned to a kind of self-destructive fate. Um, and she just is so smart. Like there's a whole section in the middle of the play where she argues with her uncle Creon, who's the king, about something, a transgression she's just committed. And her arguments are are really wonderful and sound. Um, but she also knows that she's she's sort of defeated, like she can't, she can only die for what she believes that's the only power she's been given and she takes it. I don't know. I, I just find that whole character to be fascinating and, and wonderful. Um, and so that was the appealing part of it is just like, maybe like, maybe I can capture some of that a little bit. Um, we'll see. We'll see if I did. Hmm. But So, so what would be some of the major differences between your retelling and the original? Cause it's, it's like a dystopian future science fiction story or something, right? Yeah. It's like post, post, post apocalyptic. Like there's, <laughs> one last settlement on earth and they're all dying all the time. Um, And basically I think the main difference came from, I had to ask myself how I was going to handle incest in the play because Antigone is the daughter of Oedipus who famously, you know, killed his father and married his mother unwittingly and then had children. So (laughs) Antigone is one of those children. And the, the incest aspect of the play is important. Like she feels that she's cursed from birth because of it. And other people in her society treat her that way. And so I had to figure out if I was going to just straight up do that. And I decided not to, um, because I wanted to create more kind of like wonder and mysticism around why she feels she's cursed. So there's uh, pretty rigorous gene editing in this future because of how everyone's deteriorating in this, you know, dying earth environment. And she is not edited. So that's like the taboo that she carries with her. As a curse, yeah. I guess. No, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and that comes out in February again, just for for listeners. So, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, maybe it'll be out out by then. <laughs> Hello, future people. <laughs> um, and actually, speaking of like, I, you know, and I like to think of myself as fairly well read when it comes to fairy tales and stuff. But in Poster Girl, it mentions these two that are, are kind of new to me: um, Vasilisa the Fair and uh Svaya Togor atop his massive steed. Oh yeah. So um so Sonia Condor is like a Russian name. So she's like origin Russia, although in this society they kind of have anglicized everything. Um so her name like comes at a cost, but that's a totally separate issue. I don't remember Svaya I don't remember how to say that even. <laughs> um I think I looked it up while reading and just it's like an aside, but Vesselis of the Fair is a 
story about it's a little bit of a Cinderella story. So like this evil stepmother sends this girl out into the woods to get fire from Baba Yaga. And it's like, she's basically sending her to die. Like that's the idea. She's like, get the hell out of my house. And I'll put you on this impossible errand in order to get rid of you. But obviously, like, it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> so Vesalissa, like, sees Babiaga and performs, like, impossible tasks um, with the help of, like, a sprite creature or something, um, at least in the version that I read. So the reason it's referred to in Poster Girl is that she is given this task of finding this missing girl who is, like, taken from her family by the old regime. And so it's been 10 years since this girl is displaced. And she's like, how am I supposed to find her like you're obviously giving me this task that i'm going to fail so it's just a an excuse to say you you know offered me some mercy and i i couldn't like keep up my end of the bargain so it seemed like a good a good reference for this story uh, and is, is that a story that you you just came across in your research or something you heard as a kid or um i don't know why i read it to be honest, I do love Slavic folklore. I am Polish, so um, maybe that's why. <laughs> and I did read a lot about, oh, maybe it's because of Chosen Ones, because uh, there's a lot of folklore in, referred to in Chosen Ones as like part of the magic that exists in that the world of that book. And I read about Koshe and his needle because of like one of the objects in Chosen Ones. So it's pro- possible that I read about this one at the same time, because, you know, once you're... <laughs> Once you're looking up one thing on the internet, you're inevitably reading about like 20 other things that have nothing to do with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of Chosen Ones, which was, you know, edited by my good friend, John Joseph Adams, who also yeah. edited Poster Girl. So can you talk about like, what was it like working with John on Poster Girl? Did he have any uh, suggestions or anything? Well, I I feel like Chosen Ones was way more up John's alley in that it had a lot more world building. Um, Poster Girl, like he was so great, but... It was also, I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't give you something that um, plays to like the things you love most. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was a shorter and tighter book. And so it didn't require as much editing as Chosen Ones. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I love John. He, he always finds the things that I'm not thinking about. Like he was, was very specific about a lot of the technology stuff um and uh i'm trying to remember what like there's a part where she didn't like the a hard drive is destroyed kind of automatically and he kind of helped me <laughs> develop how that needs to happen because i never thought about it. i was like i don't know just delete the data he's like that doesn't work <laughs> you have to blow it up i was like okay got it um so there was stuff like that that he always keeps his eye on but, yeah. I, I was actually wondering because you know the you know, Sonia repairs um, like radios and stuff like that, and there's there's people throughout the book who kind of collect and repair different things. And I, I just went back and listened to my first interview with you, and you said in passing something about your husband uh, setting up speaker systems or repairing speakers or something like that. I was just wondering, yeah, if there was any, uh, that inspired any of the characters in this book in any way. I mean, I think it does. I I like watching him do that stuff. Um, he's really good at. I mean, he's good at fixing things and understanding how things work. I think I admire that so much in a person, um, that kind of resourcefulness. I do not have any of it myself. So <laughs> I, it was a little bit tough to figure out how to describe um, Sonia fixing a radio because like, I don't know how to fix a radio. But I did, you know, I know 
a little bit about wires because I've seen him, my husband, like solder them in our living room and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, I, that was definitely a part of it. It's just something that I think I admire about people. It's something that people teach themselves, which seemed useful to Sonia. Um, it's not something that she's naturally good at. She just is trying to find a way to be useful. And so she fiddles with things. And also now that I think of it, I think your husband is a photographer and Alexander is sort of a frustrated <laughs> photographer <laughs> or something. Yes. Yeah, I know. It was sort of embarrassing to give the draft to Nelson, my husband, because I was like, <laughs> I swear, he's not you. <laughs> it's, not, it's just a hobby. <laughs> but I do think photography is important in this world because pictures of the past and um, they they are kind of like a secret language. and they communicate something to the person viewing them. So um, I think that's kind of why Alexander gravitates toward it. Mm. Uh, you also, you say in the afterward, um, you thank Courtney Summers for encouraging me early on to be brave and do what this book really needed. So what, is, <laughs> what, what was yeah. the brave bravery aspect? Oh man, you, you have like a laser eye for laser vision for this kind of stuff. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So Courtney Summers is an author. Um, she writes very like heavy, r- risky books. Um, they're YA books, but it they're like sort of edgy for YA, especially um, and for books generally, <laughs> to be honest. But she, um, I sent her like an early version of the outline of this book with two endings and one was happier and one was less happy. I can't, you know, say, I I can tell you I chose the less happy one because she was like, I don't think the way you set this up that this is actually an ending that feels true to the book or feels earned. So you have to do this like scary, risky one instead. Um, and, you know, no one would know how to do that better than Courtney Summers. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to trust her. And I think it shaped the tone of the the entire book, that choice. So I'm grateful to her for that advice. So, so did you write the happier one first and then you're like, maybe this is a little too happy. And then you wrote the second one or how did you end up no. with the two in the first place? Um, it's because I felt I wrote the, yeah, I wrote just an outline so that I hadn't written any of the book at this point, but the outline, I was trying to figure out like how it would go from like the three quarter point to the end. And I had an idea for it. Um, and it just felt cheap to me. Like I felt the wrongness of it. And I was trying to make it work. And I was like, well, what about this other thing I could do that's like way more like way more of a risk for me emotionally? And she was like, well, you have to do that. That's a great ending. And I was like, but I don't know that I can bear it. I remember saying that to her um, like emotionally as the writer of it. Like, I don't know if I can live in that reality for that long. She was like, you can. You must. (laughs) She's like, it's only 90,000 words. You can do it. Yeah, she's like, it's fine. You'll get over it. But it was good. It was also not as hard as I I thought. I was just afraid of it. I don't know. It's hard to explain without getting more specific. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I I guess one aspect of the book I wanted to touch on a little bit more, too, is is this aspect of, you know, um, Sonia being the poster girl and being recognized everywhere she goes. And um, and that she's sort of a symbol of, of this of this, you know, uh, fallen, hated regime. And it was just sort of occurring to me that that's kind of, I, I feel like everyone can relate to Sonia because it, it sort of seems like the, the problem that we have as humans is 
our tendency to see other people not as individuals, but as symbols somehow, of, of somehow emblematic of some some group or some phenomenon mm-hmm. or some power structure that we we like or don't like. And that I thought the book, you know, sort of made me think about that a lot of of just the, sort of the tragedy of, of seeing other people as symbols rather than as individuals. Yeah. And there's a moment when she's talking to someone and they say, like, careful, you're making me sympathize with you. Um, I think she frequently like everyone calls her poster girl instead of by her name. And I and there's a few encounters she has where she kind of like forces people to contend with her as a human. Um, and those were powerful moments for me, because like you said, this is what we do to people. I mean, we even their name can become like a kind of symbol of them instead of um, instead of what they actually are. But the trick is always to engage with people on an individual level as if they're a real and whole and complex person, just as we are. I mean, I, I, was, hard. I listened to an interview with you yesterday where you said that you felt like you kind of were treated like a, like a symbol of YA of the YA phenomenon or something rather than like an individual person. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little tricky to talk about because like I, you know, divergent is such a, huge thing that changed my life for the better and gave me a career and brought me so many wonderful things. So I never want to sound like I'm complaining about it, but it do, it does have some negative aspects. And I think, you know, when YA was experiencing the kind of boom, like post Hunger Games and Twilight, which was when Divergent came out, um, a lot of people were very annoyed by YA, you know, because it was just like everywhere and everything is a YA adaptation and like, ugh, and they didn't like the books. And, um, and, I, you know, in so, some places and by some people I'm kind of talked about as like in particular ways that are very dismissive. And it's hard to see that because like I am just a writer trying, trying my best to write the best books that I'm capable of writing um, at any given moment. So I always feel like, come on, it wasn't that bad, was it? <laughs> like, you know, that kind of like attitude about it. Um, but yeah, there have been some times that are a little frustrating. But you know, it's gonna, it's well, different. Well, that's why now. you take a six month hiatus from uh, social media, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, mostly I took the hiatus to kind of reconnect with myself. Like, what do I, what do I do when I'm not posting on social media? Like, do I use my phone camera at all? As it turns out, not really. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also thought this, this, I wanted to read this part. This is, was interesting to me. Um, Sonia says, or thinks uh, she's never been aware of her own expressions on the day of the photo shoot. This is the photo shoot for the propaganda poster. She thought mm-hmm. she looked soft and contemplative, but the result on the poster was a cold declaration. What's right is right. The text mirrored her expression. Even after over a decade, she's still startled by the discrepancy between her insides and her outsides, how no one can see the tumult of her. And I totally identify with this because I, uh, I feel like on the inside, I'm very, uh, enthusiastic and, uh, charming and stuff. And then <laughs> a lot of, like, I, I always thought I get a lot of feedback that, that my voice is totally without inflection and my face is totally without expression and stuff. So, uh, I don't know how to, you know, how, how people, uh, who just have expression filled faces, how, how they came to that, if there's just a, genetic thing or something or if there's any if, if you can <laughs> learn that somehow or something but uh i don't know i just i wanted to i, I feel sonia in that uh oh you know i do too i may not have the voice 
problem. I'm looking at, I'm currently looking at the line of my points <laughs> on the screen and I'm like, wow, I've got plenty of expression, like blowing out the audio at certain points. But um, I do, I remember feeling that way. My mother was a model um, when she was younger. And so when I was a kid, she's always trying to like give us a, you know, like for headshots for high school, she would like try and give advice, like, you need to do this or do that. And I just remember getting the prints and being like, wow, none of what I was trying to do appeared on my face. Like I have no idea what my face is doing at any given time. Um, and so I think that discrepancy between like how you feel and how you come across is something that like a lot of people can relate to, especially introverts. I feel like where you, f- you feel this like rich and complex inner world within you. And then exter- externally people are like, mm, kind of a quiet person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. What a bummer to be described that way. <laughs> I just wish that there was a microphone that would make my voice sound the way it sounds inside my head to me. Like if someone can invent that, that would come in really <laughs> handy. I think you should just you should just embrace it, man. Like it's clearly working out for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah. I feel like I've got after five hundred and twenty eight episodes, I feel like I've gotten a little better. Just don't nobody mm-hmm. go back and listen to the first couple episodes. Oh that's boy, now that's exactly what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Um, I also just wanted to ask you about this line. So um, there's a part in the book where Sonia says, uh, you don't need to know someone to love them. And that kind of jumped out at me. I was just curious. Do you, What do you think about that? Do you need to know someone to love them? Oh, well, that's, that's a deep question. Like, I, I think part of me wants to say, yes, you do, actually. But I don't think so. I mean, I, sp- I think of that, especially with family. Like, do I know the full inner reality of my mother, you know, like my mother's very complex person who's had a long life um, before she ever had me, you know, she had a whole, a whole existence before I came into the world. She was 38 when she had me. So um, I think like, do I fully know her? Do any of us fully know each other? But I still love her. You know, she still loves me, even though she'll never fully know me. So um, yeah, I guess I think, no, you know, you don't need to know everything. You need to know enough. So it's sort of a, we never really know anyone kind of thing, you know, in that way. Yeah, I mean, we're all sort of everyone has sort of a secret life that is inaccessible to to everyone else. I mean, I still have that experience. Like you're in a long term relationship, as am I. I'm on your. 12, 11. I don't know. It's fine. (laughs) Whatever (laughs) of my marriage. And uh I still find out things about him that I'm just like, what? (laughs) You have always thought that way or you've always been this way or like new memories that surface that totally change the way that I see him or like people are people are deep and complex and fascinating. And that's why like I I love I love a long term committed relationship because you're just like, wow, I get to know as deep as I can go with this person um, as opposed to getting to know like lots of different people, which is, you know, a different experience. But um. Yeah. Do, do you remember anything about why you had Sonia say that? Because it kind of made, made me think of like celebrities and where people just love them so much, even though they mm-hmm. don't they don't know them at all. But maybe like, like, can you love a celebrity or is that even if you've never met them or is that just all sort of always? An I illusion? mean, I don't think so. I think you love kind of the idea of the person. But I think she says that because that's the encounter she's having with her family. Like her family is dead at the start of the book. That's not a, you know, that's not a spoiler, but, um, and she gets to know them through this investigation that she's trying to participate in. And she, she learns a lot about them. That's like something she's not sure that she wants to know. So I think she says that because 
she still loves her family, but she's also realizing the extent to which she did not know them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that's, that's, that's really a a tough situation to be in to, to love someone so much and then find out things that, that disappoint you you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Makes for a good story, an exciting story, dramatic story. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> um, I guess I just wanted to. I was just curious too. You know, last time we spoke, um, you know, your the the book tour had been canceled for Chosen Ones because of the pandemic, and you were doing this sort of virtual tour on Twitch TV, Twitch TV. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> I was just curious uh, how that how that went. Like, was that fun, or would would you do that again, or? I mean, I had a great time, but I think we were all figuring stuff out in real time. And what I figured out is that when you do a series of virtual events, like people only come to one of them. <laughs> so um, the first one was like super well attended. And then there was diminishing returns like severely, which is totally fine. And now we've all done like we've all attended like a million virtual events of whatever kind. Um, so it makes sense why that would be the case. But you know, you can't just replace a real life tour with a virtual tour is what I learned. So I'm really pumped. I get to tour for this book. So I, I leave uh, next week and I'm excited to see readers in person again. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. So uh, how would people like what are some of your stops and how would people find out if you're coming to their city? Um, They can go on my website. Uh, Veronica Roth books slash tour, I think, is where it's listed. But I'm going to man. I'm going to a lot of places. I'm going to, I think, nine cities. So they can look there um, and find out. Yeah, I would list them all, but I I don't actually remember what all of them (laughs) are. I'm taking it like two days at a time right now. What's what's the first one or two? Well, the first one is uh, in Winnetka, Illinois, so just a suburb of Chicago. And then I'll go to New York City where I'll be at the Strand. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been to a lot of events at the Strand. I used to live in New York, so I've been to a lot of events at the Strand. Nice. Yeah, I've been to the Strand, but I have never done an event with them. So I'm excited. Yeah. All right, everyone. So everyone check that out. And we're pretty much out of time. So do you have just any other uh, any other final thoughts or other projects you want to let people know about? No, I mean, we talked about Arch Conspirator. So that's out in February. And um, I'll have other novellas that I'm working on in the future. And Poster Girl. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> Oh, actually, wait, I have one other question I wanted to ask is, is so oh, I, yeah. I, um, I heard you say in an interview, you said that increasingly, uh, some, somebody asked you, uh, which faction from Divergent would you identify with? And, and you said you're leaning more toward erudite and that you're feeling like curiosity, increasing your feeling like curiosity is sort of a very important quality for people to have. So I was just curious, uh, what's happened? How that's, how that's going. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> what, what is, making you feel like curiosity is more important than maybe you thought in the past or or whatever. I think I underestimated the extent to which being curious about someone or curious about a thing can change the way you feel about it. So like I have a great example of this right now, actually. So uh, last year there were these big orb waving spiders that were setting up these giant webs on either side of our front porch. So um, every morning when I let the dog out, I would go out and find these huge, beautiful webs and the spiders were getting bigger and bigger. I am afraid of spiders, or I was, uh, but I really loved watching their progress. So I, it was like a TV show that I was checking in on every day. And then I started to get curious about like what kind of spiders they are and how they work and I started to learn about them. And then like fast forward to today, now I save all the spiders in my house in cups 
and like usher them outside, except sometimes I just leave them where they are. <laughs> um, I'm like, okay, you can build a web there. That's fine. You're like out of the way. So I now I'm not afraid of them anymore because I became interested in them. So I think that's like kind of the power of curiosity in a nutshell. Like the more interested you are in something and the more willing you are to kind of meet it in a neutral way instead of in a judgmental way, like I think the more you can grow to love it, um, which is a little bit like if you've ever learned about mindfulness, um, which I've done for anxiety, that's kind of the, they have like a beginner's mind is a term that they have in mindfulness. And it's just approaching things like without preconceived notions of what they are and trying to like receive them in a more neutral or open-minded way. And the more I embrace that mindset, the more I know about the world around me, but also like the warmer I feel toward the world around me. So I love curiosity. It's like my favorite quality in a person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I just feel like there's just such a problem like an increasingly bad problem in, in society where people just hear things that they disagree with and, and they're like, oh, I, that must just be a bad person who said that. And you know, it's like really or like, and it gets to the point where it's like, oh, I guess like 90% of people are just bad, bad people. They just yeah. say things they disagree with. And it's like, really, I think you should be, doesn't it make you curious like how so many people disagree with you? Are they, is it not just sort of too simple to think they're just all really bad people everywhere you go? I mean... So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a sad... I mean, maybe they do believe that. But that's very sad to me. I don't want to... I don't want to live in that world. So I, I guess I'm going to try not to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like to end my interviews on a sad note. So I really yeah. <laughs> hit the ball to park on that, that one. Well, we can end on a happy note, which is that I like spiders now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> so good. Every, yeah. I, I recommend that everybody research spiders. They move with like hydraulics they can control the flow of their they don't have blood but they have something like blood they can control its flow to extend their legs which is completely insane so there you go yeah yeah give your local spider a hug and, yeah uh, yeah <laughs> um all right cool so let's uh i think we're pretty much uh that's all my questions so let's wrap things up there so we've been speaking with veronica roth about her new book poster girl so veronica thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks for having me and that was our interview. So big thanks again to Veronica Roth for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.